episode 66. My name is Tobe Johnson. This is Strange Brow Radio. And today we are talking to an extended experiencer of the alien kind. Sasha Christie in the UK is my guest. She's also the host of Paranormal Mysteries on Access Northwest. You can find that on YouTube. And we're going to talk to Sasha about all of her UFO and ET experiences, which there are many and ongoing. So, that more in a moment. But uh, let's go back to a simpler time when my sponsor, Feral by Aaron, was right at the end of every breath, as it still is. Feral by Aaron, E R Y N, at Etsy.com. Check out these alchemy sound tools. Feral by Aaron, E R Y N. Museum quality, great stuff. Even at times like this, make some medicine. All right, we'll be right back with Sasha Christie and her experiences. All right, so generally, the term extended experiencers has been tossed around a lot on this podcast, but what about extended abductees, extended kidnapped victims of the alien kind? Well, Dr. John Max certainly would say that uh, these are true encounters. I believe he was a Harvard professor. And Sasha Christie, being an abductee, someone who's been kidnapped, not only in the dead of night, but in broad daylight, um, feels the same way. And so does her family. And so do her friends. So we are going to take a look at Sasha's encounters and this is a part one of a trilogy of interviews I've done over a period of the last weeks and months. And so enjoy part one of a series of conversations that we have along the way with Sasha Christie in the UK. All right, I have with me today Sasha Christie all the way in the UK to be precise. It looks like, is it Liverpool Christie, Sasha? That's right. Yep. I'm in Liverpool, the home of the Beatles. Yes. All right, Ringo. Let's (laughs) talk. Um, (laughs) Well, tell everybody a little bit about uh, how this began for you, Sasha, and uh, your story, um, especially if you can remember it from the beginning. Uh Uh-huh. I certainly can. Um, Well, when I was little... I lived in um, a house that was like 300 years old, little cottage, and it was an original village. It's in the Doomsday Book, and our house was um, like the like a courtroom, I guess. And we had the stocks in the garden, and the street was at the time called Stocks Rise, which uh, is like a little hill where they had the stocks where they used to put people when they were punishing them. Now I had a few paranormal experiences in the house, as did my mum, you know, this kind of paranormal theme runs alongside the ET stuff. You don't generally, I've never heard of anybody having anything kind of alien going on in their life without having paranormal. Um, So my my earliest memories are of uh, seeing my grandparents walk past me together when I was, I don't know, I was maybe 10 and my grandma died horribly of cancer and it took ages to die. So I knew she was dead. My granddad, he he went like that, you know, he was gone, he was a stroke and he was gone. 
And I am, because I was so distraught at my grandma's funeral, they wouldn't allow me to go to my granddad's. So I convinced my little self that uh, he wasn't actually dead, that because he was in the Navy and then worked for the MOD police, that he'd had to go on some secret mission and that um, he's, you know, and they've had to lie to me. So that was what I was convinced of. And one day I was walking to my great grandma's on my mum's side and uh, I just looked up and I saw my grandma and granddad walking past us. They didn't look down at us. They kind of looked at us from the corner of their eyes, you know, like the corner of their eye just moved and looked at us. And I could not believe what I was seeing. I turned to my sister and I said, did you see that? And she nodded. Her lips were completely pressed tightly together in fear. We looked behind us and there was nobody there. Then another time I looked in the mirror in the in the very tiny bathroom that we had and I was I was I don't know what I was doing as a spooky child. Um but I was looking in the mirror and I was staring into my own eyes in the dark. Don't know what possessed me to do that, but anyway, uh I was watching my face change. It changed lots and lots of times until it just stopped dead really suddenly on an old man's face. Obviously that was quite terrifying and I ran away and never went in the bathroom in the dark or with the door shut again. Um, and then another time I remember playing with children in a pinky silver room. Oh, nobody was talking, but we were all doing puzzles. I always had a little bit of a thing for puzzles. My mum would, if she ever saw one that I didn't have, she'd buy it and I would do them. And I can't do them now, but if she gave me a puzzle, I would figure it out within an hour. And another time, I remember being outside and I was just kind of sat in the dirt, like digging around with a stick, thinking to my little self. And I looked up in the sky and I saw an acorn just hanging in the sky. I thought, oh, that's weird. And then didn't think anything else of it because I was preoccupied with whatever I was preoccupied with. But I've never forgotten it. Um, so I can't really remember much in my teens, even though I did have a lot of paranormal weird. I put that down to being a teenager and having a lot of energy and we had kind of poltergeist activity going on. And, um, you know, weird things, doors slamming, ornaments moving, uh, that kind of thing. And um, in a 1982... I was playing on a, a rope swing with some friends and we saw three crop circles in this field, which was literally, if it had been grass, it would have been the farmer's garden because his house was right there. And where we were was the end of the road and the field started and literally his house was like five yards from us. Uh, so we were running around in them and he came out and told us off and we asked him what they were and he said that they were caused by mini tornadoes in the corn but looking back at his how he was standing and looking at them I don't think he was too convinced of that anyway but um fast forward to 1992 uh, March uh, it's middle of the week middle of the day and um I've got a baby he's about three months old and we're fast asleep uh, and I woke up because somebody said Sasha wake up now like that and I woke up, I opened my eyes and stood in front of me right next to my bed. It was this so a three and a half foot wide, bright blue thing with huge black eyes. And it was wearing a brown cape. I, I had older my baby with the sleep on my chest. 
And I just kind of scrabbled to the bottom of the bed and jumped off the bed in a panic. And there was nothing there. And I was like, whoa, what, what the hell? That was a weird dream. And I'm looking around the flat because I'm thinking, well, Tim must be home. And I'm shouting for Tim, you know, thinking he was the one who said, wake up now. Uh, there was nobody there. So I just kind of stood there thinking, wow, that was a crazy dream. That was so vivid. And I always just thought it was a dream until probably about 2006 when I watched Communion. And as soon as I saw the little blue thing peep out from behind that vase on the kitchen table, I was just in bits because I'd realized, obviously, that was not a dream. Um, in 1997, this is the doozy, uh, I went to Wales um, with my boyfriend at the time, Steve. Now, I took my son with me, who was about six, and uh, Steve had gone, his uncle, John, was there, and Dania, his sister, and sis, his sister had taken her son. So there were two children and four adults. At Friday night, completely uneventful, we're in a little village called Glyn Kiriog, and we're staying at holiday cottage called Ketton Bath. I think that's how you spell it, how you pronounce it, sorry. Um, and on the Saturday night, Steve was out, I don't know, he was downstairs, I was upstairs, I was getting ready to go in the bath and he started shouting my name and he sounded really urgent and the children were down at the bottom of the stairs and they were like kind of making loud noises. I wasn't sure if something was wrong. So I ran down the stairs thinking there was something going on with the kids and he's kind of outside with his head in the kitchen door going, come here, come here, come here. So I went out with him and he's going, look at those, the sights over there. And I'm looking and I can't see anything. We're on the top of a mountain. It's been raining all the time. It stopped raining. But all I can see for as far as you can see, which I don't know how many miles that is, um, is nothing but cloud. And it looked like snow untouched snow if somebody had taken the snow and put it on the ceiling that's what it looked like and I, I can't see anything at all so eventually he pointed me and I'm looking down his arm you know to try and like follow where his fingers pointing to see what he's seeing and I saw this little flicker and I said it's lightning he said it's not lightning watch it so I pinpointed it so I knew where I was looking and I kept looking and then there was nothing and then it it was there again and then it was gone then it was there again it was gone and it was moving off to our right which is kind of uh, from where we were in Snowdonia um, four miles away from uh, Berwyn where there was another UFO incident uh, in 1979 I think it was so this thing's moving off to our right it's as far away as you can get on the horizon and from where we are I think it's moving over towards Liverpool and I was like, oh my God, yeah, it's definitely something weird, brilliant. Wow, we've seen a UFO. Then thinking we're just going to watch it go away, it it starts getting bigger and we can't figure it out. I remember thinking, why is it getting bigger? And uh, it was getting bigger because it was coming towards us. Now, obviously, we didn't think it was coming towards us. We just knew that it had changed direction and um, it was kind of doing this weird zigzag not little zigzags, big, you know, big to the left, to the right, to the left. It did that maybe six or seven times. So by this point, 
Steve's gone in and he's called out John and Danya. The children are there as well and we're watching it. It's getting bigger and bigger. And then it's coming straight at us. It's right in front of us where we've been stood watching it. And it's absolutely massive. It's gone from being a little flicker to this huge ball of light within the clouds. And from it, you know, from the center of this light, it was rippling through the clouds like, like it looked like tentacles, but it wasn't tentacles. It was that it was an illusion because of the different densities of the cloud. It's like if you shine a light, if you could shine a light through mashed potato and it's all lumpy, you you get that kind of effect. So it's it, it's obviously pulsing because this ripple is it keeps coming out and out and out, and it's sort of a greeny pink and yellowy tinge. And it's so big that to see one end of it to the other, you're looking at 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock, so your head has to turn slightly so that you can see it all. Um, you know, at this point, getting a little bit nervous, uh, we're all milling around the garden, which, uh, you know, it's a long garden. In front of us, there's a field of sheep, and, you know, it's that kind of country. There's nothing in front of us other than trees, and the village is down a lane, quite away from where we were, you know, a good sort of five-minute walk away. And uh, so we're, we're on our own up there. It's as remote as you can get. And um, it, it sort of goes behind the house. And then it's, as it, it's zigzagging, as its last kind of zag, if you like, it comes to be in the field, over the field, sorry, where the sheep are in. So we move up the garden because it's no longer in front of us. It's moved around to the side. So at this point, the kids are getting a little bit nervous and we're going, oh, it's okay, don't worry. It's just um, lights from a farmer's tractor shining on the bottom of the clouds. You know, we would just make, say anything to kind of like keep it normal, even though we didn't realize the enormity of the situation. It was kind of like we were that stunned or we'd been muted in some way, our behavior had been altered uh, to not react in a way that you would imagine if you'd said to somebody, okay, so if this enormous UFO comes to you and it's at least a mile wide, what are you going to do? I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to run. Oh, I'm going to wait, I'm going to talk to the aliens. Oh, I'm going to call people. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. We didn't do anything. We just stared at it gobsmacked. But we were laughing and joking as well. So it it wasn't hitting us what was happening. So it's in the, it's over the field. Uh, we're all kind of stood in a bit of a line, um, away a, li- a little way away from the house, and we're watching it as it drifts very, very slowly to be over the, from over the field to right over the, us and the house. So at this point, what we can see now is a part of a machine which was like a huge central circle of light, and it had say seven, maybe seven, I'm not exactly sure how many, obviously. Um, it was like, you know, the strip lights that you have in offices or shops. It would look like there were seven of those coming out to, from the center towards the edges. And there was a, like a little fine other light at the ed- end of those fluorescent strips, which was moving one way, but the fluorescent strips were rotating quite slowly uh, clockwise while the other one was going anti-clockwise. So we're all stood underneath this. Everything is covered in this blue light. It's white. 
The centre of this craft is white, but everything it touches is blue. And Steve's kind of stood behind me a little, but to, to my uh, right and a little back and behind me, directly behind me, there's like a chicken wire fence about 15, 20 feet away. That, and um, he's stood at the side of the house and he's on this plinth, but I think what it was was maybe the entrance of the septic tank. I'm not sure. We're going, we're actually going back in a couple of weeks. So I will find out what that is. But I am stood looking up and I look at Dania who stood on the little wall next to me and her face is just blue. And then I see this bright orange light that hits the side of the wall in a strobe. So it hits Steve full in the face, does this strobe light. I turn around to see what that was. And right behind me, directly behind me on the floor, was a sphere, which was probably about the height of a man. It was glowing, this very dull gray light, like on and off every other second. It was slow. It was pulsing. And all this mist or steam or something was coming off it and, you know, sort of spilling out around along the floor and going up in the air and around it. And I went, oh, look, there's another one. And everyone looked at it and went, oh, yeah, and just carried on looking up at this other one. But this is when the children started to get freaked out. My son is tugging on my jumper and I looked at him and he was absolutely terrified. His face, you know when your kids are terrified. His eyes were massive. He's like, uh, mummy, mummy, a, a hand just comes through the hedge and touched my foot. It wasn't my imagination. I saw it with my eyes. So instead of looking like I would have done if he'd have said, there's a monster under the bed. I just turned to Steve and I said, oh, the kids are getting scared. And he said, well, come on, let's take them back inside. So, okay, without even a second thought or the realization of what he just said to me impacting my brain, like I was completely unaware of what was going on. I can't even believe that. This is one of the things I get stuck on uh, emotionally, uh, psychologically, is my son told me that a hand had come through the hedge and touched his foot. And I didn't even look. I didn't even think to look. I didn't think anything. I just said, the kids are getting scared. Let's take them. And he said, let's take them back inside. So as we were walking back to the house, John, who had previously been stood there with his hands on his hips, declaring that it was the Aurora Borealis, uh, was with Joseph, Daniel's little son. And he had an axe and he was chopping into some wood and going, this is how we chop the wood, Joseph. And he had his back to the entire scene. And I think it was to save his own sanity and to distract Joseph. So anyway, everyone gathered together and we all walked back and we all walked back down the length of the garden and went back in the house. So outside there's this big thing above the house and there's this little thing on the floor. So what does everybody do? Steve goes back to washing up. John and Daniel go back into the living room to watch TV and the children go to exactly where they were when they were playing when I came down the stairs. So I'm looking at everybody like they've gone mad because this is happening. But even I don't realize what's happening because to me still, it's like, I'm not frightened. I'm not thinking of the things that you should be thinking of, you know, nothing. And I don't want to swear, but I said, F this, I'm going back outside because they were all being weird. That wasn't weird, was it? Wanting to go back out there by myself. Nobody said don't go out there on your own. And nobody, nobody batted an eyelid. So I walked back out of the house and up the, up the path to the 
far end of the garden, as far away from the front door as you can get without leaving the property. I stood right underneath it and I'm looking up like completely awestruck, thinking, now what? You know, kind of laughing to myself. Even as I walked up the garden path, I saw that sphere on the ground and I looked at it and I looked down, shook my head and laughed. Like, you know, with in it was incredulous laugh. It wasn't, uh, oh my gosh, this is so funny because I, it just wasn't hitting home what was going on. So I went and stood right underneath it and I'm thinking they sound like, oh my God, you know, I can't even verbalize. It was feelings that I was having, not thoughts really. And uh, I heard something run behind me and it had two feet and it had nothing on its feet because it ran across bare mud and it made a slapping sound. And i never forget that. It was a short little fast step. And it bumped into my back. Uh, that fast and hard as it was going past, it actually dragged my clothes with it, whatever it was. But I was standing, like I said, I've gone to the furthest part of the property away from the door. I'm standing right next to a wall. So I, if it kept on running, I should have heard it hit the wall because there was only inches. I was only inches away from it. But then the next thing I know, I'm running. And I didn't even have the thought to run. It was like a surprise to find myself already running. There was no thought in my head. I was I was just out of there. I was running. All I could hear was my breathing kind of thing. And I couldn't actually see. I'd gone blind. Um and now people have said to me, some people have said it, they called it hysterical blindness in the wall. And when you were so terrified that you just, your brain shuts down. Other people have said, oh, well, when they bumped into you, that's when you went up into the, the ship and then you hit the ground running and they've got a mental block in you and that's why you can't say, well, I can't say that happened because I have literally no recollection of any abduction being any, seeing even an alien or even being in a craft or anything. So obviously I've kind of run to the house and I'm, there's a little few little steps and I've just jumped from the steps. I'm trying to jump from where I am to the front, to the back door, to the kitchen door. Uh, and then I remember I hit the patio and then I was in the house and then I saw the children and I just stopped dead. Steve's at the sink washing up. And I'm just stood there trembling like mad. I didn't know what to do. And I just kind of like said to him through, you know, gritted teeth, like quietly so that the kids didn't hear me. I said, something's just run up behind me and grabbed me. And he said, he looked at the clock on the cooker and he said, well, you aren't being out there long, so you haven't had any missing time. Like that is the most normal thing to say in that situation. That point even though my mind had already gone from the panic of running for my life, when he said that, that was it. When my Everything just hit me. It was, I, I don't care, lock the doors, you know, like put furniture up against the doors, close the curtains, do, you know, like all of that, batten down the hatches kind of thing. I was absolutely terrified. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be more than an inch away from Steve the whole night. Like I was holding onto his T-shirt I made him come to the toilet with me. When we went upstairs and somehow got the kids to bed, 
I couldn't put my feet on the floor. I was terrified. I was sat in the middle of the bed and I made him look under the bed so that I could put my feet on the floor. I've never been scared like that, not even as a child. I've, I, I can't even explain the terror um, that I was going through. I don't know how I didn't have a panic attack. I think maybe having the children there was probably the most grounding thing that could happen. So, you know, we were holed up in the house and Steve looks out of the bedroom window and he just closes the curtains and doesn't say anything. So I know it's still out there. Somehow we go to sleep. Don't know how we all went to sleep after that. I have, I have no recollection after a certain point. It's just boom, gone, nothing, nothing. Blackness, anytime I try and think of it, it's like hitting a brick wall. All I can remember is everything that I've told you and <clears throat> nothing else. Um, we tried hypnosis recently. I said, you know, if we both do it, we should have, you know, there should be some correlation in whatever we say. I've never, this is 23 years ago this happened in 1997, and I've never wanted to do hypnosis because I was terrified of finding out that something else did happen. And after that, and maybe a year after, uh, me and Steve split up. We didn't see each other again not for 13 years, when we found each other through Facebook. Uh, and he rang me. He was living in Spain. I had tried to find them, but I couldn't. They were both living in Spain with Steve and Danya. Sorry, just get a drink of water. And uh, so we talked for the first time, and I was hoping he was going to say, oh, no, it wasn't that bad. <clears throat> You've over-exaggerated it in your mind. No, it wasn't this, it was that, you know, and he was going to tell me that it was something that it was easy to live with. And uh, he was like, yep, yep, that's exactly what I remember. He told me how he, you know, what he remembers. Then, um, it, you know, it was exactly the same, although he can't remember the sphere. And I said, well, that's funny because you were the one who got the full strobe in the face. Now, his sister, Dania... After the next day, we were all screaming at each other. Everyone was in a maxed out stress state. Daniel was bent over screaming at me. John was being horrible to me. It was like everything had gone on was my fault. You know, looking back, it was just how it felt like some something in both of them. Why, why they came at me, I have no idea. But it was a horrible day. Steve and I decided to leave my son with them. And then they went out for a what and did whatever they did and we went out for a walk now we went out we walked all the way down to the village we walked to the pub stupidly asked somebody if they'd ever seen any lights in the sky they told us where we could go pick magic mushrooms you know uh, so it's like okay great uh, let's not say anything else so we just carried on walking and Steve can he can remember where we went but I can't I just remember that we ended up on this little tiny hill with one tree on it and we were looking around and we were like, please let there be a nightclub with, you know, um, laser lights on the roof. Let something be around that will explain that. It was We were just grasping at straws. It was ridiculous. So as we stood there on this hill looking around, this ginger cat just starts rubbing itself on my leg. I have no idea where it came from. We were in the middle of nowhere. So I just freaked out again. I said, I've got to get out of this place. I can't cope with this. I can't, I, I, I've got to go. So we went, we left. We went back to the house. The arguing carried on. The atmosphere was awful. So Steve, um, he booked some tickets with a coach and he booked a taxi and we 
went to bed, but we got up really early. And me, my son and Steve, we sneaked off. We got a taxi, got up to Wrexham, which was the nearest town. And then we got a coach from Wrexham back to Leeds where we lived. And um, we just didn't say anything. So a little while later, after speaking to Steve, the 13 years later, Danya, I see her. We talk about what we saw. She remembers the spear. She remembers everything being the same. But when they came to leave the next day, they couldn't because John's car wouldn't start. They had to stay an extra night. And she said that it was like one of the worst nights of her life. She was absolutely petrified. I couldn't have stayed there another minute, never mind another day. If if that, if I did not, if we hadn't have run away and we'd have stayed and found out the car didn't work, I think I'd have gone completely stack raving needing a rubber bus kind of you know mad um because i just couldn't take it anymore it was it was like ah, oh, i can't even describe the anxiety so um the upshot of all that is is you know it was 1997 it's now 2020 and finally steve and danya have said that they're going to come forward and speak about this so um, this year is the first year that there will be three of us talking about the same incident and what we saw, uh, which is a bit of a relief. But I also, I, I took it on the chin and um, thought years ago that they'll probably never, ever come forward. I'm probably going to have to carry this on my own. I only came out on the internet because I couldn't contain it anymore. I was literally um, suffering from PTSD after eight years, I was completely hollow with it. Oh, it. It affected my mental health. It literally ruined my life because when you've run for your life, when you kind of have that adrenaline smash your chest open and it feels like that, it feels like your chest explodes. You hear that saying and you see it written down, but if you've ever had it, you'll know it's actually true. Your chest explodes. It's like being hit by a truck. Um, it, it, it's, it caused untold damage because of the way that it made me malfunction in my life. Therefore, my life wasn't running properly. You know, I was, um, and then I became a drug addict because I didn't want to go to sleep. And then I didn't want to stay awake when it was daytime because I didn't want to be asleep at nighttime. And, you know, then I started drinking as well. And, you know, I didn't become an alcoholic, but I did abuse alcohol for a while. It took me years to get off drugs. It took me years to get my head around all of this. I still haven't got my head around it, but basically I'm not destroyed by it anymore. And to now know that after 23 years that Steve and Danya are going to come forward and that in a couple of months' time, we will have like a little documentary thing that our friend's doing. And in uh, September, Steve and I are both talking at a conference for the first time together. So, you know... We're going back to do some filming in a couple of weeks, which I'm really, really, really nervous about. I did go back in 2012, but I only stayed a few minutes. I filmed the whole thing. I was literally there. I was in and out. I was like, I can't even, I can't even go around the side of the house. I do not want to see the side of the house. Um, I, I just couldn't handle it. I was, I only went back to do a little video because I'd been asked to do a conference talk. So I was like, oh, I need some material. But when I got there, I just couldn't do it. So, fingers crossed, this time I uh, will have the kahunas <laughs> because I'll be with Steve who's there, who we can relate and, you know, we can kind of support each other. 
And when I said to Steve, you know, what did it do to you? He said, it left me stripped raw to the bone, exposed, feeling very small, which it does. It makes you feel your size in the universe. When when something like that happens, it takes the complete lid off your life. You kind of live in a bubble uh, until it pops and then you realize, oh my God, there's nothing from the top of my head to the furthest reaches of space that, you know, that there are. And that is one of the things that you have to kind of get your head around, <laughs> you know, like, I'm so small. Um, but yeah, that is the main doozy of an event. Uh, but I don't have an abduction. Is there anything that you want to ask me before I go on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, getting to your son in particular, what does he recall about being touched? He said he thought it was the hedge moving. Then he realized it was a hand. Now, when he was little and he <clears throat> he got poorly, he had a fever and, you know, like an ear infection or something. And he was kind of reliving something that had happened to him. And he was looking for my mum, his mum. Uh, I want my mum, I want my mum, I want my mum. And I was like, I'm here. He's like, you're not my mum. And then when I tried to, you know, like I, I put my hands on his arms and he was like, get your fingers off me, the sticks. So I was like, right, okay. So I don't know if he was seeing something that he'd seen before or because I didn't have my fingers dug in him. So I don't know why he would say that. I just had, my, you know, like the palms of my hands at either side of his shoulders to say, "I'm, it's me, I'm your mum, you know, I'm, it's okay. Um, he had awful, awful nightmares and he would come downstairs in a total panic and he would say that he had this weird whooshing noise in his ears and that he felt like he was falling backwards through the bed and he was going, I can't, I can't stand it. I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to kill myself. When you stood there and you're seeing your eight-year-old child saying that they're going to kill themselves, it's just too much, you know. So I, I said to him recently, doing this documentary, I don't know if you want to say what you remember, he was like, I don't really know because it really effed my head up that, you know. I said, I know it did, babe. I said, don't do anything you don't want to do. It's fine if you don't want to say anything. And he's like, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. But what he remembers is seeing a hand made of sticks and the lights in the sky. So that's pretty much his memory of it. He doesn't really remember anything else, but he does remember the hand made of sticks and um, the lights above you know, so, and he's 28 now. Right. And you describe some elements to hearing and I guess sort of seeing what ran up behind you and disappearing into the wall. Is that how you described it? No, I don't know. It, it, I'm not saying it disappeared into the wall. I didn't see anything. What I'm saying is it ran at me fast and it bumped into my back. I don't know where it could have gone because basically I should have heard it go into a wall right, right. next to me. Right. That I didn't hear that. There was nothing. So all I know is I felt that and then I was running and I couldn't see. So mm-hmm. I, I have um, no idea what it was. It wasn't a sheep because sheep run away from people. They don't run into people. You know, it wasn't a, a dancing cat with tutu, you know, doing anything. <laughs> I don't know. I can't say what it was because right. I didn't see it. Uh, but I have my suspicions. You know, and obviously with my son mm-hmm. saying that he saw a hand, we know that the grey's hands are very 
long and spindly. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I assume that mm-hmm. that's what was going on, but I, I have absolutely no recollection. So I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to make it into something that is not because it's dramatic enough as it is anyway. But, was, um, yeah, was that's there any uh, familiarity with any of this, uh, Sasha, in, in witnessing what you saw? Was there a part of you that kind of knew at your core that you were an experiencer? Because you're describing yourself as an early age experiencer from the acorn floating to witnessing the you know, communion yeah. and, and seeing things. I, but I didn't familiar. see myself as that because it was just random things that had happened to random weird women. Um, my mum's like, oh, that's a bit weird. We always like, oh, it's a bit weird. And then you'd forget about it. You know, I didn't think of things in those terms. I didn't even know what that was. Well, what do you think's going on with this? What do you think's going on with um, their ability to kind of paralyze your normal reaction? I mean, you described so many scenarios where your normal reactions were stilted and these other reactions were yeah. kind of inserted to you. Do you have, have you moved any closer onto what that is? Well, uh, having met a gray in 2012 and it actually, it's very presence um, or it's mind or something about it caused a vibration in my mind, uh, uh, which pretty much paralyzed me. I could move, <clears throat> but not, I couldn't get my act together. I couldn't get my coordination together. And, uh, you know, trying to sit up or trying to grab something to pull myself up, trying to get my legs to grip the bed so I can sit up, you know, that kind of thing. Nothing was happening. My coordination was completely debilitated by this thing. So I suspect that something along those lines was happening, like um, our fear factor was sent off. Or maybe it was just that surprising and stunning. Nobody was reacting because it was overwhelming in an awesome kind of way. Um, But now there's something that Steve said happened, that he went upstairs to the loo, sorry, the toilet, um, and he said, which is weird because this is February and it's cold. There was a fly in the bathroom and it was on the bath. So he said he's on the loo and he's, there's a fly in the bath and he, you know, flies take off backwards. So you, you go anywhere near the front of a fly, it's just gone. He pushed it with his finger, he pushed it back and it walked back towards him and he pushed it back and it walked back towards him and he did it again. He said he did this three times. Now, like I say, flies take off backwards. Why didn't it just fly off? What, and also the sheep in the field were all lying down. So sheep are very skittish and they make a racket when something's going on. Uh, same as cows. There weren't any cows around, but, you know, animals, like farm animals, easily freaked out and they let you know they're freaked out. They were completely silent and they were lying down. So in retrospect, we can assume our wonder if there was something about the craft that it was emitting mm-hmm. um that was it maybe even the sphere on the ground that was causing it i've no idea we nothing was behaving and not, no life was behaving as it should have done so the sheep weren't running around which is why i know that it wouldn't have been a sheep that had got somehow into the garden and then decided to run at me and headbutt me you know in the back so 
I guess something subdued us in a way. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. Oftentimes witnesses will describe a vacuum effect on during or after their abduction or their experiences of the supernatural where there's an absence of not only sound but uh, people and um, where there should be a busy area there suddenly is a lack of you know travel or people walking around Mm -hmm. did you experience that as well during that particular encounter well we were so far away from anyone anyway on the top of this mountain away from the village and I don't recall any kind of like noticing at the time, any kind of static or, or any kind of uh, muting of the noise around us because it was kind of still anyway. There wasn't any wind. It wasn't raining. Um, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. I, to, I didn't notice any sort of that vacuum effect or the Oz factor, I think, is one of our British uh, what do you what do you call Jenny it? Rundle's the Oz culture. factor. That's uh, Jenny Rondells, one of our old, you know, like old school British researchers who's still on the scene now. Not so much, but that was a term that she came up with. Yeah, oh, I and I tend to agree. But I, I, I don't, uh, I don't recall noticing anything being weird about sounds or whatever. Like you know, I know some people say it's like when you go out and it's snowed and everything's kind of. Dull, mm-hmm. that's kind of how it, yeah, but I don't remember noticing that, to be fair. And so your uh, experiences doing regressions, looking, um, you know, into those moments where time may be missing, did you come away with anything and are you still trying to pursue that Mm-mm. angle? No, no, I didn't. I tried it. Somebody tried years ago to hypnotize me, but I really didn't want to be hypnotized. And this second time I thought, no, I'm with Steve. We're together. Uh, He was in one room, I was in another. But we were in like a busy hotel and, you know, somebody came in the room, you know, I had the door. I, I just couldn't relax. I just didn't, I didn't know the people. I didn't feel safe. I think if I was somebody that I trusted and who was a hypnotist, maybe I'm might be able to relax but I just couldn't I just started talking she was just like talk and see what comes out and basically everything that I've just said to you now in the same way it was just just recall that I already have there was nothing but like I say I wasn't relaxed I wasn't I didn't feel safe and to go back to that I would have to feel absolutely safe because I ran for my life it was probably the most terrifying moment that I well I hope I'll ever have um, so I just couldn't, I couldn't go, I just couldn't relax. So no, it didn't mm-hmm. happen, but, after but it would two, be an interesting experiment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Moving forward. Yeah. Now, after 2007, things progress. You start to get answers after 2007 with some. No, I got more and more questions because mm-hmm. something else happened. Now I didn't talk to anyone um, until 2005, uh, which was like eight years after the fact. Um, I went on a forum called UFO Magazine and the Weird Wide Web. I went on that forum and I'd, sorry, I'd broken my knee. I'd ruptured my knee so badly. I have had to have several operations on it um, and I couldn't work. I was a chef. You need your legs to work when you're a chef. 
So I was at home all the time. I was absolutely out of my mind with boredom. So I bought a computer and I thought, I don't even know what to do. <laughs> what do I do now? You know? So I thought, UFOs, let's have a look because of what gone on and it was really eating me up. And I saw this forum and I looked at all the posts and everyone seemed very nice. I had no idea what the internet was like at all, uh, green as a cabbage. So um, I, I put a little miniature version of what had happened and I got some really nice responses from people. So I started talking to them. I started talking a lot then I couldn't shut up. <laughs> and uh, I ended up running this forum because I was just like, blah, 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 all the time, like emptying myself, asking questions. And, and reading all this stuff and thinking that I knew what was going on and thinking I knew it was all benevolent. And people were saying, oh, you'll have a, you'll have a chip in your nose, you'll have one in your toes, you'll have one in the back of your head, in your spine. And, blah. and I believed all this stuff. So I filled up with all of this rubbish that I didn't know was true, but people were telling me it was. So I thought, oh, the internet must know. So I believed all this crap. And then, um, well, it's not all crap, but it doesn't necessarily happen to me. Do you know what I mean? You can't say, oh, well, uh, you were abducted and this did happen to you and that happened and now you have all this stuff inside you. And, uh, you know, I don't know that. So I, I've, I've gone back to basics, basically, <laughs> after filling myself up on nonsense. Um, so, oh, sorry, I've forgotten what I was going to say then. So, all right, um, in 2007, uh, 2005, I went to a conference and it was a UFO, British, Great British UFO show. And it was the first one after the UFO magazine conferences had shut down because uh, the editor of the, the largest UFO magazine we had, Graham Bertel, he died. So that folded, end of. Um, and the other editor, Russ Callahan, he was having another go. So he created uh, the Great British UFO Show and another magazine called UFO Data. So I went to the UFO show and I'm listening to this guy up there, Jason Andrews, talk about his abductions, talking about how he used to disappear as a baby and all these other things. And I was like, oh my God, my mum told me that. I, I used to disappear as a baby. They used to ransack the house looking for me. And they'd, eat, they'd find me in a cupboard under blankets with the door shut. And this is at 18 months old. So I don't know what, what I was doing. It might have been completely mundane. It might have been me being a little monkey. But I'm listening to this guy saying this, and I'm putting two and two together. I might be making four. I might be making five. I have no idea. So, But I'm realizing that actually his life has mirrored mine in quite a few ways. In fact, I don't know about the aliens. And, you know, I... I've heard about these little blue things now. Um, you know, I'd seen one myself in 1992, like I said. So I made friends with this guy and his wife and his mum. They were all there. Lovely, lovely people. I'm still friends with them now. I met some other people. I thought, oh, this is great. These people are brilliant. I love this. I feel welcomed. I, feel, I, don't, I don't feel insane anymore. I can talk about it. I was so relieved. Following year, he's... This Jason is speaking at another conference, um, and it's, this is now 2006. So I got to this conference listening to him talk, and I've gone with another friend that I've met, I've met on the forum. But anyway, we we all we went together, and one of the things that Jason says is that he's a reptilian abductee, and he allowed the reptilians in their energy form to travel 
inside him to experience everything that he was experiencing. I was like, mm, don't know if I believe that. You know what I mean? Not sure if I can go that far. But anyway, he said that. It's in his book. I read his book. I read the print off the book. And I'm sat about 10 feet away from him at the front of the, you know, it's, like, it's just a room full of chairs. It's not an auditorium or anything. So I'm on the front row about 10, 12 feet away from him. And he's at his microphone and he's talking about what's going on. And, and I'm like looking at him and like, like I say at this point, I'm still cabbage looking, very green. And, I'm, and I'm, everything's mystical, everything's spiritual, everything's fabulous. So I'm looking at him and I'm seeing this blue around him. And I thought, oh my God, I'm seeing an aura, you know. <laughs> and I look I think back to think, oh my God, Sash. Anyway, so I'm watching this pulsing blue around him. And um, I'm thinking, wow, I've, I finally, because I've been trying to do this, you see, I've been reading all these books and trying to get all, you know, get with the program. And uh, after a little while, I thought, hey, it's not around him anymore. It's stood behind him. So there's this blue shadow man thing, like spiky around the edges um, and dark blue, but see-through. And then I'm looking looking and then I think what is that there's something in front of it so there's another one and it's come out of the blue one and it's like a, it's like silver well no it's not it's it was all see-through but it had like little glitter sparkles in it so that's all I can describe it like sparkly not the big blue thing but the little gray thing was sort of sparkly and it was completely see-through not really any features sort of a little bit darker where there might have been eyes in the big tall blue thing. So I'm I'm staring at it and I'm thinking, is it my eyes? So I'm looking around, looking at other things and looking back and because you know sometimes you get an imprint of something in your eye and you can't you see it wherever you look at a blank wall. So I was kind of seeing if that was going on and it wasn't. They were there. Then as I'm staring at them, this thing starts to come out of the side of the big blue thing like a, just an appendage like an arm or something and then it just drooped at the end and this thing that kind of drooped down it just dropped off and it fell straight down I saw it fall straight down so it should have been on the floor where Jason was standing 10 to 12 feet away from me it dropped straight down and landed at my feet I saw it fall straight down but it landed at my feet I was like what it was tear-shaped, all spiky around the edges, but it was like a tear and the point was pointing at me. So I'm looking at that, doing the whole looking around again, you know, like, is it my eyes? So I've gone, after he's finished talking, I've gone back to the table where we're selling magazines to tell Michael, who I'm with, I've just seen the maddest thing ever. And on the table is a piece of paper with a drawing of exactly what I've seen. I said, who saw that? He said, Vitali. Vitali was the other person that I'd gone with. I was like, I saw it. I saw that. In my head, I sat there when it was going on thinking, draw this, draw this. And I didn't. I wish to God I had because I could have gone, da-da, you know, like, I, I, I just don't listen to myself when I really need to. So, you know, that was that. That was weird. Um, a year later, I got to their house and I'm staying at the house and there's loads of people there. There's a conference on in Norfolk Paula Harris has come, she's talking. I'm going from the magazine, I'm going to do a review of the conference and, you know, it's going to get printed in the magazine. So 
it's like we're all in Anne's house, Anne Andrews. There's a few people there. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe six, seven people. Then James and Lynn left. Fran and Mike stayed. They stayed in the conservatory. Ellis Taylor was there. He slept on the sofa. Uh, there was another spare room upstairs with a couple of people in. I can't remember who. And I was in Jason's old bedroom. Jason, obviously living with his wife now. And there was a bit of a, you know, like a joke about, oh, who's going to sleep in Jason's old room? Because people have said they've gone in there and they can't breathe. The energy is bad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I will, you know, because I'm the idiot who thinks it's all benevolent. It's all very lovely. It's Space Brothers and all that lot. So I go and I get, you know, go to bed. Then I wake up because I can hear and feel a sheet being pulled down off me. Like the sheet is folded over and it's being slid down my legs. So I start to wake up. I had a quilt on, so that sheet, I've no idea where that came from, but that happened. I felt that it was what was what woke me up. And as soon as I started to wake up, this sheet of rubber or something came over the top half of my body, over my mouth, over my face. It took all the air out of my lungs. Now I'm kicking and carrying on. My legs are the only thing that's free and the only thing that I can move. And Obviously, as I said, I've ruptured my knee. So the pain was absolutely startling <laughs> uh, because obviously I've been very careful. I was always very careful. I had no ligament, uh, ligament missing. And at that point, I hadn't had a full reconstruction. So, you know, I'm kicking, I can feel the pain. If I'd have had time to think it, I would have thought that I was being murdered and I would be cursing myself for staying at people's houses that, I, you know, I've met on the internet, etc. that kind of thing even though I didn't meet him on the net. But anyway, uh, so the next thing I know, well, this sheet's come over me. I can't breathe. There's no air in my body. I'm panicking. Then I feel my skin go cold, but then I feel it go deeper into my skin. I actually felt everything in me freeze. I felt my heart freeze. I can't tell you how that is. It's just, I can still remember it. So, then the next thing I know, something's flashed at the rubbery, whatever it is, at my mouth, and I'm taking a big <gasps> of breath. So then I'm sat in a, a, Now hold it right here, Sasha. This is so reminiscent of the fire in the sky scene when Travis Walton was no, taken. No, that didn't actually happen. No, no, it, that, that didn't happen to Travis. I Right, right. But it I happened in Phil. Right. Right, right, which is so interesting, the fact that you're describing mm -hmm. something that he said didn't happen. Yeah, he, that was in the film. That was like what they call artistic license. And, right. You know, making right. it look more dramatic. Right. Yeah. I, I've never heard it. this description before, and I certainly never saw anything like that before the movie. So go on. I, I mm -hmm. want to hear the yeah. rest. Uh, so the next thing I know is that I'm in um, like a dentist chair. My left arm is out and it's on a thin, tall steel table, which has a blue cloth on it. So it's just like, you know, a normal earthly surgery kind of situation we've got going on here. So my arm is outstretched. My palm is up and I'm looking. My arm seems to be about 20 feet long. My hand is 20 feet away from me. Everything is so distorted. Obviously, I when I look back at that, I think, Drugs were involved. Some, I was drugged at that point. It was distorting my reality. Um, 
<laughs> the reality was already distorted, but you know what I mean? Like my vision was affected by whatever it was. So I'm in this dentist chair. I've got my arm out and my right arm is up. And I'm trying to move. I'm trying to get up. I'm trying to get out of this chair. And, and in my mind, I don't really know what's going on. And I'm, I'm thinking, and, and I'm trying to speak and I can't speak. I'm trying to say, help me. I'm trying to shout, help me. But I can't even get a whisper of it out. I can hardly even move my lips. It's, it's like a very weak whisper coming out. And I, but I was trying to get up at the same time. My brain goes, just stop trying to get up and just shout. Just concentrate on shouting because you're in a house full of people. Someone will hear you and they will come. This is my brain trying to rationalize what's going on. So I can stop moving. And then I, I, I said, help me, help me. It got louder and louder. In the end, I shouted, help me at the top of my voice. I don't really remember much after that, but as I was sat there, I'll tell you what I can see. So I've got my arm on this blue, this steel table with the blue cloth, and I can feel needles in the ends of my fingers, like like a typewriter, you know, like an old-fashioned typewriter. So if you imagine somebody's got my hand in one of them and it's all made of needles and they're tapping on the keys really quickly. So there's needles bouncing up and down on my fingertips. And... uh I look and I see this black hairy ball of just hair, long, longish black hair. And I think it's a dog at first, a little dog. And uh, it doesn't really look like a dog because it's literally like a ball. And it's got black eyes. It's got a black mouth. Everything about it is black, but I can see that it's got eyes and a mouth. Weirdly, in the UK, we had some insurance it's called, and there's a little creature in the back of the car and it's called nagging doubt and it's making you feel guilty about not having any insurance or not having the right insurance and all the rest of it. So you can always see this thing in the mirror, you know, in the rear view mirror and it's there, you know, reminding this person and it's actually so close. It's a little bit cartoony, but so close to what I actually saw freaked me out it makes me wonder they, they know that these things are about it makes me wonder if adverts are actually tailored for aliens sometimes you know like and I, and I see things that I've seen and I think how do they know that exists how do they know that it's it's so close but anyway tangent um this thing's chewing on my fingers and in and so obviously I'm thinking these needly thing is its teeth but I don't think that's what was going on I don't know if that thing was even real or if it was real, if it was part of the machinery or whatever, I I don't know. So this is going on directly kind of at my arm in to my left, but further forward to, you know, like around about where my knees are, there's a machine and it's on this tubular stand and it looks like it, well, it, it comes in two halves. The top half fits in the bottom half. It's a big square white machine and it's got a glass panel on it and it's got a line through it. And then in the thing behind the glass, you can see that a graph is being plotted, being marked out. So I'm hooked up to this machine. It's plotting something. In retrospect, I hate saying this. In retrospect, I think it was testing nerve function. I think that's what the needles were, the tiny needles tiny, tiny needles drumming on my fingertips on my left hand. 
my right hand was up in the air. I couldn't really turn my head to the right. So I couldn't really see. I could just sort of, I just knew it was there and up in the air, basically. So I shout out and then boom, nothing. Don't remember anything until I'm stood up. And I'm stood, there's three light panels to the side. They're tall, they go from floor to ceiling, maybe about 10 feet high. There's a metal pole, like a, literally like a pole dancing pole, just there. There's somebody stood to my left. In front of me, there's a little girl and a great big, I don't know what it was. It was, the, I saw the back of something. I saw a back, but it was at least seven or eight foot tall. I could see the nobles of its spine and that it was very broad at the shoulders. It was blue. And this little girl was stood like in between me and it and her head was where its backside would have been. So I didn't see its backside or legs or anything. A human, a human girl, girl, Sasha. Yeah, she looked human uh-huh. at first. So there she is. She's got this little white dress on with little like flowers, tiny, tiny flowers and a ribbon around, you know, kind of just underneath the chest. And um, I can't remember if she's got her arms folded or if she's holding a doll or a teddy or something. I was just looking at her her face. I was like, Jesus, as a child, as a mum, I just took I took steps towards her to grab hold of her, to pull her away from this thing that was behind her. Like, is it just out of instinct as a, you know, a, a loving human being? I went to grab her away from danger. And as I got right up to her and I'm looking in her eyes, her eyes are bright gold, gold as gold can be. The pupil was totally round and I saw it, you know, dilate and constrict almost with the pleasure of seeing me freak out when she grinned and her entire skin just rumpled at the side of her face where her ears would be. And this crocodilian grin, well, no, it wasn't crocodilian. It was more like a T-Rex. You see the, you know, the shape that kind of, it comes forward and then round and all the yeah. teeth were exactly the same length. They were exactly the same width. They were the color of old bone. They were not slimy or anything like that. Dry old bone. And that's what I was looking at. This thing with bright gold eyes and these teeth. Just all very pointed, about an inch long and about half half centimeter wide. Just uniformed all the way around. And so I've, I took two steps back and, and I remember looking at somebody to my left. It's all a blur. Whoever's there is a blur. I can just see skin color and a bit of dark. Now, Ellis Taylor was downstairs. So he's, he's sleeping on the sofa. So I wake up and I'm like, what the hell? Is that a dream? No, it wasn't a dream. Oh my God, it was really real. And I'm sat there and I'm not knowing what to do. I heard someone go to the toilet and as I heard the toilet flush and the door open, I shot out of that bedroom. It was Ellis. I was like, Ellis, Ellis, something happened, something happened. You know, whatever. I don't even know what I said. I was frightened him to death because I came out of that bedroom like I'm a thousand miles an hour looking like Mrs. Crabtree from South Park. So we go downstairs and we sat down, get a cup of coffee. We're talking, I'm talking, telling him what I can remember. I said, and there was a, 
you know, black dog chewing on my fingers, this happened, that happened, this lizard, this child, you know, and he said, well, I was, he said, I was lady, he says, and that wine bottle, he said, it was there when everybody went to bed. He says, now I heard it moving across the table and it moved to the other end of the table. And, but obviously we have the paranormal stuff all around us because we're all experiencers. So, you know, we, that kind of stuff is, we probably should, but don't really freak out with it anymore. But um, anyway, he said he woke up, he was stood at the back door, he was looking up in the sky and he looked down and he had these black dogs chewing on his fingers and licking his fingers. Now they were taller than the one that I saw. But I've forgotten the, oh, is it the next day? Oh, this is a difficult bit. I can't remember if this happened the day before or the next day. When everyone's outside and I'm looking at the floor we're all smoke. We were all, I don't smoke anymore, but I was a smoker back then and everyone else was outside. We were all having a sick. And um, I'm just looking down and this bird lands on the floor in front of me like it's, you know, like when they've hit a window. Right. So I was like, what the hell? And they all went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that I was like, what? They said, that bird hit nothing. It was just flying and it hit nothing and it fell on the floor in front of you like something was invisible but there was a wall that it hit above our heads all right that was part one of my interview with sasha christie and it's about ready to get really interesting and there's a part three and we will air most of part three as one of our regular episodes so part one part two and part three with her friend Paula, who happens to be an extended experiencer. But that's down the road. We'll explain that later to you as well. Also, if you have an experience or a story, I've got some good emails lately from Sasquatch witnesses, uh, including with some really interesting photos. Um, Get a hold of me at strangebowradio at gmail.com. And I'd love to talk to you, anonymous or otherwise. Also, don't forget this week coming up, on March 28th from 10 to 11, I'm sorry, 10 to 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, strangebrowradio.com is where you go to get a free ticket for our Skinwalker Ranch conversation with John B. Alexander and Tom Powell talking about portals and Sasquatch. Michelle Freed will also be there, remote viewer extraordinaire and producer of Midnight in the Desert and myself. So uh, we got rid of about 100 tickets. Let's get rid of some more at strangebrowradio.com. Go right to the link. Get your ticket now. Free, free, free. That's it. Leave a five-star review. Be cool like that, why don't you? And we will talk to you next week or sooner. Be safe. Wash your hands. And if not, I will see you in the trees.